Arts, Lifestyle, SNS Online. Say somebody was gay was libelous, and so nobody did it. And that, I realized, was one of the reasons we were having such a hard time being ourselves. And if you couldn't discuss it, then we were going to stay that way. The closet would be a permanent institution that was being honored. And he told me, uh, we're all given a war, and this one's the one that's been given to you. Gay people, actually, in San Francisco said that I had spoiled their light morning entertainment by bringing in this political agenda. And I knew I had to do it. I was, I'd always resolved to tell the truth, and I couldn't stop now that something terrible was happening again. Hello and welcome to SNS Online. Today's special guest is not only one of America's most respected and well-loved authors, but someone who has documented much of his own life via his fictional counterparts. His award-winning and best-selling series of novels set in San Francisco, Tales of a City, have both shone a spotlight on the evolution of LGBTQ politics, questioning America's traditional moral compass, as well as following a beloved group of lost souls uniting in a brand new city to find life, love and a better sense of home. Four hugely successful TV series adapted from the books were made, the latest now streaming on Netflix, and the author himself promises more Tales-related work in the future. For someone synonymous with the city by the bay, we find him at his new permanent residence in southwest London, having escaped a certain Donald Trump, and where he's in the midst of a major UK tour. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for a true icon of the written word, Mr Armistead Maupin. So Armstead Maupin, thank you so much for joining us on SNS Online today and indeed inviting us to your new London home that you share with your husband Chris and Snugglechop's doggy Philo, um, who's uh, sniffing around uh, under the table near me as I speak. Um, this is a real <laughs> honour for me as a fan of your work. A Tales is obviously your extended love letter to San Francisco and I think it not only places you as a national treasure uh, but an international one as well. Would you agree with that? <laughs> <laughs> I'll be anybody's treasure. <laughs> Yeah, well, no, I don't know. The The Netflix series, the recent Netflix series. Isn't it fantastic? It's very good. I'm very happy with it. I can say that. I've got my name on it as executive producer, so I'd better say it. But it's <laughs> it thrills me. And uh, it's turning up in countries. Because it's Netflix, it's proving to be very popular in in places that are notoriously homophobic. And that's thrilling to me because it's showing somebody a vision of a life that they could have. Just to say, I love your memoir so much and recommend it completely, particularly the notion uh, that you can gravitate towards a potentially better, more nurturing fit uh, than your, from your biological family to what you coin your logical family, people who you've chosen to be around you, hence the title of the book. It's just so beautifully and simply put, and it's bound to resonate with so many people. Thank you very much. 
Um, your life beyond your books is just as fascinating, if not more so than tales. Was that the main reason you chose to reveal yourself so directly uh, uh, rather than via fictional voices? Uh, the memoir, you mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I thought it was time. I'm 75 mm. now. I was 73 and a half, I think, at the time. You look good on it, sir. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, it, but uh, you know, most writers, when they reach that point in their... Well, a lot of them do, anyway. I wanted to tell my own story and explain where I, what my journey had been, because it was a, a long trip, yeah, starting cool. with conservative republicanism in North Carolina and a very homophobic family and um so tell us about your early life i mean obviously not only as a gay man but a closeted gay man and your relationship with your father etc uh well uh it was a crime a sin and a mental illness when i came along officially all those things in america let's take the case of jimmy barnes jimmy played baseball all afternoon and he didn't feel like walking home so he decided to thumb a ride what Jimmy didn't know was that Ralph was sick, a sickness that was not visible like smallpox, but no less dangerous and contagious, a sickness of the mind. You see, Ralph was a homosexual, a person who demands an intimate relationship with members of their own sex. So no matter where you meet a stranger, be careful if they are too friendly. One never knows when the homosexual is about. So you just simply hid until you couldn't hide any longer, until you have so much fun that you can't hide any longer. I'd like to point that out. Coming to San Francisco and discovering myself in my late 20s um, and discovering like-minded people made all the difference. I knew I was mentally ill. I had read it somewhere in a magazine. I heard that there were ways to treat it, too, if a psychiatrist was alerted early enough. But I couldn't bring myself to tell my parents, even if it could save me from permanent insanity. There were mornings when I woke up thinking, tonight I'll tell them. After supper, maybe. Or after gunsmoke, when Tony and Jane and Mimi had gone to bed. But I never found the nerve. Had I done so, I would no doubt have other stories to tell you now. Ones about homoerotic slideshows with electroshock devices that attached ever so correctively to my genitals. Talking about your father, I was struck by the moment in your memoir when you said he led your entire family out of church one Sunday when he strongly disagreed with um, a rather liberal sermon that was being made. Um, he was making a stand. I think he was hoping everybody else would follow him out, and they didn't. Um, and you ended up in your garden rather awkwardly connecting about planting shrubs or, or something very neutral. I think I ended that scene that way in a sort of sweet way. I don't think I didn't find any serious okay. focus. <laughs> <laughs> the sermon was our minister saying that it was time we let black people come into the church. Uh, they had not been since the days of when they had a slave gallery up in the balcony where the black people who belonged to white people could come in. But, um, and I remember seeing one or two when I was a boy, but that was when it was the maid of someone in the family. They would waive the rules about it. So it was wrong, and I knew it. And uh, he had embarrassed himself by marching out of the church, thinking that the whole church was going to follow him, and they didn't. 
I felt kind of sorry for him at that moment. I was blessed with women like that in my youth. Fairy godmothers who taught me how to nourish my incipient fairy heart. My mother's mother, the English suffragist, was an elegant fae spirit from a time when past lives were all the rage. I was the oldest of Granny's 19 grandchildren, the first of us to fall under her seductive spell. She took me to see the first run of Singing in the Rain, and it even let me go back twice on my own so I could master the lyrics of all my favorite songs. Since that time, she often theorized that I was the reincarnation of her beloved cousin Curtis back in England. Her bachelor cousin Curtis. Her extremely artistic bachelor cousin Curtis. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feel, and I'm happy again. Let's talk about some of the strong women in your life, your, your mother, your grandmother, who was a suffragette, uh, and both amateur actors as well. I mean, do, do you think you could have possibly become an actor at some point on, based on their influence? If I had a scrap of talent, I might have... <laughs> I've never been able to act. But you turn up on all, all your series in different well, guises. I, I got recruited by the <laughs> director of the first one to do a sort of Alfred Hitchcock mm. thing, and it became a tradition. Um, my grandmother, I'll have to correct you, she was a suffragist, not a suffragette. Suffragist. The distinction, as she explained to me, was I didn't pour acid in mailboxes or chain myself to the prime minister's carriage. Right. Uh, but she did travel all over England and made speeches for the cause of votes for women. And uh, she was a big influence in my life because she was a generous, open spirit. And I used her to find my way into Anna Madrigal when I was writing that character. So she was one of the main influences. Yeah, easily. And even now, as I begin this tour around England, um, I'm thinking about, I'm wondering if she spoke in certain towns, if our paths are crossing, you know? Yes. I like to think they were. Captain of the Everglades was a tall, affable fellow whose purse-lipped smile and protruding ears made him a ringer for Donald O'Connor in his Talking Mule movies. Oh, Captain Tid was a good egg, and everybody knew it. He demanded professionalism, but even when he chastised me, he was decent about it. Here's the thing, Mr. Maupin. I'm fine with sunbathing on deck. It's good for morale, but if your men are sunbathing on the starboard side, you should be doing it on the port side. Do you read me? I read him all right, and began to wonder how well he read me. Let's talk about your military tours. I mean, looking back, do you feel you learnt a lot about like life and human nature just from that time? Because it was just such a very intense time in your life. Yes, well, it was vivid. I, <clears throat> my mother said I had a Lawrence of Arabia complex, <laughs> getting far clo closer to the truth than she knew. Um, but... Uh, I enjoyed it. I mean, I enjoyed Vietnam in the sense that uh, 
I was in this exotic country and seeing people different from me and I didn't have to shoot anybody and only randomly was I shot at. And, and I met people that uh, opened up my world. It was a white boy from the South. I didn't know anybody or anything. And uh, war will do that for you. There were a dozen men in my division, all of them pretty likable. One of them, a 19-year-old Billy Bird of a blonde named Spikes, was especially likable. He was one of our signalmen, a skill I always found romantic, the naviest of all jobs. My father had learned of my birth via signal flags from another ship when he was stationed in the South Pacific. Baby born, mother and son both fine. When Spikes worked his signal flags, every muscle in his body participated. I did my damnedest not to let my appreciation betray me, but was not entirely successful. Some of the names of the real people you've referenced wouldn't be out of place in some of your novels. as Flash Blackman, Colonel Horatio Hunter, Admiral Elmo, or Zumwalt Jr. That was all my... Well, Flash Blackman was my roommate. He, he, wrote, he flew a little, he flew a little uh, biplane around over the VC territory. And uh, his favorite expression was, shit, oh, dear. Uh, <laughs> That's delightful. Yeah, and those, those were Admiral Horatio Hunter. I mean, uh, Captain Horatio Hunter was mm. one of my commanding officers. It was amazing, actually. It felt like a movie was being cast everywhere I went. But I just look at life that way. I, re- I record those things. I ended up in a place called Chow Dok, a town on the sluggish Basic River near the Cambodian border. It was a combat base for the boats of the Brown Water Navy, which meant that I got to wear a snappy black beret with my now-faded field greens as I manned a radio in a sandbag communications bunker on the edge of the river. There were only three of us in this naval unit, the other two being enlisted men under my command. Our job was keeping the army from shooting at the navy and the navy from shooting at the army and both of them from shooting at civilians. What are your thoughts of the Vietnam War now, looking back all those years? Presumably quite a different viewpoint. Uh, well, yes, an entirely different viewpoint because I thought I was doing a good thing by being over there and it soon, soon became quite clear that we weren't, um, that this is one more adventure in uh, imperialism that America was engaged in. And, uh, and I don't like it when people on Facebook will say, thank you for your service. I thought, I don't thank me for my service. I was a stupid young man who volunteered for a war that was a useless thing, that where many innocent people were killed. And that's going on right now. And uh, it's amazing to what degree how many people, even the people who regard themselves as liberal, will fall into that thank you for your service crap trap. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, it's often women, too, I must say. It's often women who mm. think it's their job to thank the men who've mm. gone off to fight for us. So, so all this leads back to essentially wanting your father's approval. That's a good enough one. Yeah. I wanted his respect and admiration, and, and he, thought, he told me, uh, we're all given a war, all Maupin men have been given a war in each generation, and this one's the one that's been given to you. So I was trying to be uh, Daddy's little boy. Um, 
thank God it just proved to be a, a really fascinating, interesting adventure, and I've tr recorded that in the, in the memoir, some of the people I met and the things that happened. The bus ride into Saigon had a similar flavor of grim, jocular initiation. Our military driver, whose job must have been boringly repetitive, had found his own way to spice things up. Sit back and enjoy, folks, but stay alert. If someone on a bicycle sticks something on the side of the bus, pull it off and throw it away from the bus as hard as you can. There were bicycles everywhere, of course, jostling for space with canopied pedicabs and people toting things on poles and dinky toy cars that had been there since the days of the French. You returned to Vietnam with other veterans to help the locals in a variety of ways, which then led to your meeting with President Nixon, the Oval Office. This is what I mean about your own story, but so fascinating. Uh, let's just run through that a little bit. Well, oh, um, just to say that little noise is this huge doggy. Hello, oh, sweetheart. Wants love from you. <laughs> just breathe into the microphone. He just snorted for you. <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah, that was a, I actually met with a guy that set that whole thing up. That was a big, uh, you know, I have to back up and say, you know, I was a conservative back then. I was a young conservative, and, and I believed in the war. And uh, so this friend of mine who I'd known in Admiral Zumwalt's office in Saigon uh, called me after I got back and said, uh, I'm working for the White House now, and we want to set up a program where we we'll, you can come and take 10 veterans with you back to Vietnam and it was all to, all to look like Nixon was doing something humane. And uh, so it was a front for, we were, we were supposedly building houses. We did build houses, really shitty houses. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't your, like, your big... Uh, Not my finest work, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, for Vietnamese veterans. Yeah. And, uh, and they didn't collapse, did they? After you I left? don't know. I'd love to go back and see if it's their brothel now or something. Um, but uh, and then we were to be recognized in the White House. We, I didn't know that. Uh, I was in my little Opal GT crossing the country um, when the phone call came through from the White House that the president wanted to see me on a Tuesday in the Oval Office. It's the White House, she whispered to her son, covering the receiver with her hand. A uh, Mr. Holderman, a Holleran or something. They want you in the Oval Office on Tuesday. President Nixon wants to see you, Tom. And they've been trying to reach Armistead, too. Should I tell him you're here? It occurs to me now that I could have missed this moment completely. I'd been on the road for four or five days with five more to go, and I wasn't checking in with anyone along the way. Had I not been invited to stay at Tom's houseboat, had Bob Holderman not called at supper time, I would have been unreachable on my cross-country odyssey, thereby missing out on one of the more surreal episodes of my life. With ten other guys that were there, uh, I went to see Nixon and... I met this man who was sweating profusely because he was there with young men and he didn't know how to be cool <laughs> with anybody, actually, when you think about Nixon. Yeah. Uh, he was very... I could sense his awkwardness right away. And he tried to get on our side by uh, talking about girls. 
he actually said something about, oh, those little Vietnamese women with their, with their eyes, they look like little butterflies when they're on their bicycles. It was totally, it was just... Like he just walked in the room then. Totally. <laughs> it was totally creepy. It was totally creepy. And he'd pick the only queer in the yeah. room to tell his girly story to. Um, so we, I mean, when it all came out about Nixon, was it a, a big revelation to you? <laughs> what? That he, no, it wasn't a big revelation. <laughs> I guess I knew in some level that he was a crook because mm. he kept saying that he wasn't, roughly like our current mm-hmm. asshole-in-chief. Um, and those. And yours. <laughs> so they look so much alike. It's, I felt like, oh, no, we've just inherited Trump. We've moved to England and we've... Well, it's just like Dr. Evil and Mini-Me, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's like a, another little, you know, narcissistic blonde ass monkey running a country and not knowing how to do it. But welcome, I welcome to the UK. <laughs> <laughs> I, everything I love about the UK is here. The gardens, the people, the, uh, the literature that I have revered for so long. Um, it's here. And it's easy to, when you're in any situation to think that the whole world is revolving around whatever awful thing's going on. But I try to block it out. I've learned the internet is just there to disturb you. Disturb you. Disturb you. <laughs> was at a party last night and Charles McCabe was going on and on about your serial in the Pacific Sun. Charles McCabe was a senior columnist at the Chronicle, a crusty, hard-drinking Irishman with a road map of a nose to show for it. He wrote essays about shaving and other manly pursuits, like his love of Rainier Ale, which he called Green Death. Some people found him misogynistic and homophobic. I was one of them. He must have hated it, I said to Ginny. No, no, he thinks they should have something like that in the Chronicle. I don't know if it was just loose talk, but I thought you should know. I wasted no time in contacting McCabe. He wrote back to say that the paper needed young blood, since the columnists were nothing but a bunch of old farts about to fall off the hooks, and I was just vulgar enough to fit in at the Chronicle. So I dug out a blazer and a tie for the interview. The editor proved to be a gentleman, a little reserved but kind, He was nervous about running fiction in his newspaper, make your own joke there, so the title of the serial would have to indicate that it wasn't actual news, and he wanted to be clear about one other thing. This will have to run five days a week, 800 words a day, not weekly the way you did it before. I understand. You can write a story that will just keep on going? Absolutely. Forever? Yes, sir. My heart was in my throat. How the fuck was I going to do that? Let's talk about the San Francisco Chronicle. You uh, apparently were between the men's section and the women's section right in the middle. That makes me sort of a non-binary writer, doesn't (laughs) it? Actually, I've thought of myself that way as a writer. I think you have to be. That's interesting. Well, you're going to write about both 
you know, whatever genders you're writing about, I started to say both genders. I was writing about at least three. Um, and what, what are the women in generally, what do they say about your novels? Do they feel that those characters are speaking to them? Oh, yeah. I, mo- most, I think many of my fans are women. Mm. Um, I, I mean, mean, I think you write beautifully for women, but... You know. Oh, well, good. But I'm a man. <laughs> I'm a man, I'm a man I don't know. I can't judge you it. Maybe I mean? there are times when they see something and say, oh, I'd never say that or mm. whatever, but... I think I've always tried to tap into both my male and female sides when I'm writing. Like other things about her, Marianne's menstrual cycle was so regular that Mussolini might have included it on his train schedules. When the world was going to hell in a handbasket and chaos ruled the day, she could always count on the prompt arrival of her period, or, as her mother had once explained it, the bloody tears of a disappointed uterus. Her uterus had been unusually disappointed today, which meant that her mid-month pains were due in another 14 days, give or take a day or so. According to her doctor at St. Sebastian's, and several authors she had seen on Donahue, those pains, Mittelschmerz was the silly technical term, were the surest indication of ovulation. While some women apparently showed no outward signs of ovulation other than uncomfortable periods, Marianne had all the evidence she needed, thank you. Flipping through her New Yorker appointment book, she counted 14 days ahead, and found herself landing squarely on Sunday, April 3rd, Easter Day. Eggs at Easter. Cute. What was that quote uh, somebody said to you? Perhaps it was your grandmother about somebody being totally male, totally female is something to be avoided. Yeah, we were walking to a garden party when I was 14 years old, and she saw this very femmed-out woman in pink stuff and high heels. And... Um, and she turned to me and said, any woman who is all woman or any man who is all man is a complete monster unfit for human company. <laughs> so true, though. It's it. totally yeah. true. I guess people need to embrace their feminine side as well as their masculine. Use what you got, everything, all you've got. Women should take over the world anyway, but we wouldn't have any women. I believe that. So, I believe as one in particular, I'd like to take over the United States. <laughs> and it may happen. Describe the overall premise of Tales of a City. Um, boy, 40 years of writing, um, one paragraph. People living in an apartment house in San Francisco, uh, finding love and drama and mystery. Um, it's kind of an adventure in a way, an urban adventure. Um, Everybody gets his moment. It uh, was heavily influenced by Alfred Hitchcock. There's pictures on the wall here in the house. Uh, because I love stories that, uh, you know, the way in which he, you never knew exactly what you were seeing. That's one of the reasons I love it so much, because there's lots of twists and turns. I think I can imagine you writing crime very well, because you, you've got that sort of mind where you can really lead people down uh, different uh, routes where you don't know. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel you're one of the early few early writers who gave the LGBTQ community a three-dimensional voice, or are there any other people you can think of around your time? 
Um, now you're going to get me in trouble. I'm going to be some so gay writer's going to come. What about me? Um, well, that's all the influence. It was pretty radical. Yeah. What I did. You're in, allowed to in say a that. Popular, uh, popular context yes. and popular fiction that people got to read. Straight people got to read. Um, and it was uh, exhilarating to be doing that. I loved it. The house was on Barbary Lane a narrow, wooded walkway off Leavenworth between Union and Filbert. It was a well-weathered, three-story structure made of brown shingles. It made Marianne think of an old bear with bits of foliage caught in its fur. She liked it instantly. The landlady was a 50-ish woman in a plum-colored kimono. I'm Mrs. Madrigal, she said cheerfully, as in medieval. Marianne smiled. You can't feel as ancient as I do. I've been apartment hunting all day. Well, take your time. There's a partial view if you count that little patch of bay peeping through the trees. Utilities included, of course. Small house, nice people. You get here this week? That obvious, huh? The landlady nodded. The look's a dead giveaway. You just can't wait to bite into that lotus. What? I'm sorry. Tennyson. You know, eating the lotus day by day to watch the crisping ripples on the beach and tender curving lines of creamy spray to lend our hearts and spirits wholly to the influence of something, something, you get the point. Does the furniture go with it? Don't change the subject while I'm quoting Tennyson. Marianne was shaken until she noticed that the landlady was smiling. You'll get used to my babbling, said Mrs. Madrigal. All the others have. She walked to the window where the wind made her kimono flutter like brilliant plumage. The furniture is included. What do you say, dear? Marianne said yes. Good. You're one of us, then. Welcome to 28 Barbary Lane. Thank you. Yes, you should. Mrs. Madrigal smiled. There was something a little careworn about her face. But she was really quite lovely, Marianne decided. Do you have any objection to pets? Asked the new tenant. Dear. I have no objection to anything. Is it true people would eventually come up to you uh, at the San Francisco Chronicle to impart their own stories or gossip that they had heard in the hope of you putting it into your column? Yeah, they, <laughs> they kind of auditioned for me. Uh, and, uh, and I often got to use it. Oh, Not always, yeah. but... And you merged fact with fiction. So just to explain to people, uh, Tales of a City was uh, sort of um, a fictional account of, of, of people living in San Francisco, gay, straight, etc. But the news seeped through. So it, it had a touch of realism to it. Yeah. Mm. I basically said it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much what it did. But what you also did, you managed to sneak in sundry references to gay bathhouse sex, transgender identity, etc. I mean, was that quite an uphill struggle with your bosses? Well, they found, when they found out that Anna Madrigal was transgender, they told me I couldn't reveal that for a year. And I obeyed. And it was the best thing I could have done because I had the audience loving her. And by the time they found out her dark secret, um, it wasn't so dark anymore. They knew her and loved her. At the end of a do-nothing day, Marianne brought the Sanifem home with her. Finding Mrs. Madrigal in the courtyard... She showed the device to the landlady and gave a terse explanation of its function. 
What is it? It's a Sanifem. It lets you pee standing up. Funny, said Mrs. Madrigal, her smile showing only in her eyes. I had to wait 42 years for the privilege of sitting down. Marianne reddened. It was easy to forget that Mrs. Madrigal hadn't become female until roughly the time that Marianne hit puberty. I read about a time when you uh, met some of the other party, uh, which I think, you know, ended in a, quite a sweet way. Uh, you, you were invited to a party that had a wonderfully accepting and sort of disparate crowd of kind and friendly people, gay, straight, etc. And there's a wonderful quote in your book. Um, it was then that I saw how life could be if you just let it happen. It was a revelation to me. Was that a real turning point? That yeah, that was a theater. It was a theater party. Mm. And the theater's always been... Uh a refuge in that way because they've accepted everyone. Everyone can be everything in the theater. And it was gay and straight and young and old and a very, very handsome man that took me to bed that night. And I found out uh, many, many years later that he had been Ian McKellen's first lover. Yes, that was amazing. And yeah, I found it when Ian was doing his one-man show at uh, Stonewall 25. And he t started talking about lovely Kurt. And I, I went backstage and I said, Kurt Dawson? <laughs> well, wasn't there somebody else in on this conversation who said, oh, I, I've had him too? <laughs> Terence McNally. <laughs> he was a comfort to many of us who were in the theatre community. Clearly. I'm always drunk in San Francisco. I always stay out of my mind But if you've been to San Francisco They say that things like this go on all the time It took commitment to visit this place. You couldn't just look both ways and slip in off the street to check out the crowd. Once past the door, you were faced with the dauntingly steep staircase that offered no clue as to what awaited you at the top. There would be no easy escape. I was on the verge of bolting when, somewhere above me, the voice of Barbara Streisand reminded me that we're just all children, needing other children, and yet letting our own grown-up pride hide all the need inside. So I took a deep breath and began to climb. It was worse than I thought. They were slow dancing with each other. All those men on the dance floor, slow dancing to Streisand under twirling coloured lights, as if that were the most normal thing in the world. Tacky doesn't scare me anymore, but it did back then. I didn't stay long at the rendezvous, and I don't recall a single face from my first ever visit to a gay bar. So it wasn't the prospect of sex that rattled me, but a sudden vision of institutionalised queerness. Was this how I wanted to do it, after all? With the twirling dance hall lights and the slow dancing and an overall air of lurid tattiness? Nowadays, I would relish the chance to be in such a place. A room wiped clean of techno music and video screens that didn't look like some chrome-trimmed sports bar in an Indianapolis airport. For that matter, I would love to be able to slow dance with my husband without feeling the least bit silly but I've never been quite in sync with the times. But first be a person who needs people People who need people 
You're listening to SNS Online with today's special guest, Armistead Maupin. Armistead was at that time writing a column, Tales of the City, in one of the local papers, and he had a character in there who many people thought might be me. <laughs> and uh, were terribly offended. I mean, how could you put this person down and tease? And it's irreverent. If you can't laugh at your faith and yourself, you're in big trouble. It was suggested that your real-life targets uh, were big enough to handle the parodying in your column. Um, I, I think there was a quote in one of the documentaries that you were essentially lashing them with wet noodles, i.e. it didn't hurt them too much. <laughs> I think that was from the guy that was Father Patty Starr. Yeah, that was, he was fantastic. He's a very campy man. What a sweet guy. <laughs> it was He's lovely. terribly funny. Of course, it's a bit naughty, but if you're going to be on TV or radio, at that time I had two weekly radio shows, a daily radio show at the number one AM radio station in Northern California, uh, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. And so if, if folks are going to be offended, I think in the main, Almostad picked uh, big targets who could handle the the wickedness of the little barb, the, the burr under the saddle, the little, uh, I, he was lashing us with wet noodles. It didn't hurt that much. His real name is Miles Riley, um, and he had a TV show in San Francisco where he got up there on Sunday mornings and just camped up a storm in clerical garb. Did he call it his dress or something like that? Yeah, well, no, our minister called it his dress. Oh, okay. The minister that made my father marches out of the church <laughs> used to refer to his dress. He was a gay man. My father said when, I, when he found out I was gay, why didn't he tell us earlier we could have gotten him into the seminary? The idea was that's where you put queers. Oh, I see. I understand. Yeah, yes, as yes, a young yes. man, yeah. I thought you meant electric shock on the nipples or something. No, that's, well, that's no, a sex no, club, isn't it? That's... <laughs> We won't talk about that. They were. <laughs> you just did, but uh, <laughs> um, the the actually there was electroshock treatment that I might have had when mm-hmm. I was a teenager if I had told my if I'd worked up the nerves to tell my parents I was gay, mm-hmm. they would have wanted to fix me for my own good. The main room was only big enough to contain an armchair and a bed, a problem discussed at length when my parents visited and found me sleeping on a mattress on the floor. My mother suggested that what I needed was one of those captain's beds with drawers beneath it, so I could at least have a little storage space. So my father measured the room with his conveniently foot-long feet, and we drove out to an unpainted furniture store in Mill Valley. There, as any idiot could have predicted, the choice of a bed took on embarrassing dimensions. A single bed will give you more space in the room, my mother insisted. I told her I didn't need to move around. I could put a table and chairs out on the deck and eat meals out there when the spirit moved me. Well, that's silly, darling. There's only one of you, and the single bed is plenty roomy. 
I told her there was more storage and a double bed. You'll be way too cramped in that room, she insisted. You'll have to squeeze around the bed just to get to the kitchen. I like a big bed, I said feebly. My father was the one who put an end to this. For God's sake, Diana, he's a grown man. He might want to have company some night. Did he know what sort of company? Certainly not. Did my mother know? Maybe. No, probably. Did she really think that a smaller bed might keep it from happening? Let's talk about the Save Our Children campaign by arch-right-wing Christian and um, LGBTQ nemesis Anita Bryant. I love homosexuals, if you can believe that. I love them enough to tell them the truth because I know that there is hope for the homosexuals that if they're willing to uh, turn from uh, sin the same as any individual, that, uh, that they can be ex-homosexuals the same as there can be an ex-murderer, an ex-thief, or ex-anybody. Well, she was, uh, you know... To British, if you remember Mary Whitehouse, she's one of those kind of people. And she led a campaign uh, to save our children, as she put it, uh, to keep uh, South Florida from legitimizing um, civil rights for gay people. And uh, I was very, very angry about it at the exact time that I was coming out of the closet. And a lot of my friends were. I think that she did more to create out and proud queers than almost anybody. So we have her to thank for that. We have her to thank for that. What I found so scary She's about watching... Around. Somewhere, she around. Yeah, she lives in somewhere in the South. Big surprise. Mm. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and she's still around. I've, always, I've sometimes toyed with the notion of asking her if she'd like to have a conversation with me. Life's not worth a damn Till you can say Hey world, I am what I am Fumbling with an awkward preamble, including the shameful and already inaccurate assurance that I would change it if I could, I finally said, I'm homosexual. She absorbed that for a moment and then left the sofa and knelt in front of me taking my hands in hers. Big fucking deal, she said with the loveliest little smile. And that's all it took. I started coming out to everyone. Friends, co-workers, cab drivers, anyone who would listen. It was so exhilarating. Once, as a reason for quitting a boring office job, I confessed to the employer that I was gay. So what, he said with a shrug. I'm married and I'm fucking my secretary. That's no excuse. Five contestants had already vied for the $100 prize. Another was competing now, thrashing across the plastic dance floor in nylon leopard skin briefs. The crowd howled its approval. Listen to that, Mona. It's all over. 
Michael chided himself silently for selecting the standard white jockey briefs. This mob obviously went in for flash. Come on, said Mona, pulling him through the crowd to the edge of the dance floor. You're next, Mouse. She stayed by his side as they waited in the glow of an electrified American flag. Luscious Lori Lee moved to the microphone when the applause for contestant number six had subsided. How about that, guys? Could you believe the pecs on that humpy number? I mean, please, Mary. He gripped the contours of his sequin bosom. Rice bags never looked so good. Michael felt the color leave his face. Call Marianne, he whispered to Mona. I'm going back to Cleveland with her. Mona reassured him with a pat on the rump. Okay, bellowed Lorelei. Our next contestant is contestant number seven. He hails from Orlando, Florida, where the sun shines bright and they grow all those beautiful fruits. And his name is Michael. Michael something. Honey, I can't read your handwriting. If you're out there, how about telling Laura Lee your name? Michael raised his hand half-heartedly and said, Tolliver? What, honey? Michael Tolliver. Okay, let's hear it for Michael Oliver. Now bright red. Michael climbed onto the dance platform as Laura Lee slipped back into the darkness. The revelers at the bar turned in unison to assess the newcomer. The music began. It was Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah band doing Cherche la Femme. Michael slipped his body into gear and his mind into neutral. He moved with the music, riding its rhythm like a madman. He was merely having that dream again, that ancient high school nightmare about appearing the senior play in his jockey shorts. His eyes unglazed long enough to see the crowd, the shining tan faces, the muscled necks, a hundred tiny alligators leering from a hundred chests. Your books understandably took on a darker hue when you reflected the oncoming of AIDS. Was there ever any pressure to skirt around these issues? No, I, I, I didn't take it on as an issue. I took it on as something that was real in my own life. And now a real crisis for San Francisco. It was big news here this morning. The AIDS epidemic, said the headlines, is spreading so rapidly that it threatens to overwhelm San Francisco's financial ability to deal with it. Some information from our fact file. There are more cases of AIDS among gay men here than anywhere else in the country. Some doctors believe that 50% of the gay population is walking around with the AIDS virus. At least 15,000 men are expected to die in the next four years. Working all day And the sun don't shine Trying to get by And I'm just killing time I feel the rain fall the whole night through Far away from you California blue California I'd lost a little brother in my logical family. 
Daniel Katz. He died at the age of 25. Pneumocystis pneumonia took him out before there was even a treatment for that. And it was very swift and jarring, and, and I thought, I have to let the world know what I'm feeling. Um, and that had mixed results in terms of uh, some people... Gay people, actually, in San Francisco said that I had spoiled their light morning entertainment by bringing in this political agenda. And I knew I had to do it. I was, I'd always resolved to tell the truth. I was telling the truth about bathhouse sex and, uh, and gay men, and, uh, and I couldn't stop now that something terrible was happening to gay men. She stared at the skates, feeling the pain begin to surface again. I found them under the sink, Michael explained, avoiding her eyes. I gave them to John two Christmases ago, and I completely forgot where I kept them. Hey, not now, okay? She fought back the tears, to no avail. I'm sorry, Mouse. It's not fair to you. But sometimes, you know, it just creeps up without any... Christ! She wiped her eyes with two angry sweeps of her hand. When the hell is it going to stop? Michael stood there, hugging the skates to his chest, his features contorted horribly by grief. Oh, Mouse, I'm so sorry. I'm such a turkey. Unable to speak, he nodded his forgiveness as the tears coursed down his cheeks. She took the skates from him and set them down, scooping him into her arms and stroking his hair. I know, Mouse. I know, baby. It'll get better. You'll see. Spend my days with a woman unkind Smoke my stuff and drink All my wine the killing off of John Fielding by AIDS that was uh, that was something that I, I mean I obviously get that was important that a lot of people were taken aback by that well, especially at the time when they didn't, some of them weren't experiencing AIDS deaths, and I thought, I'll give them one to experience. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was the logical one because he was such a lovely and loved character um, that I did what I had to do. Nowhere is the problem more severe than at San Francisco General. There are more AIDS patients here than at any other facility in the city. 16,000 AIDS visits last year. 32,000 expected this year. This year. This year. This year. This year. You won't admit you love me. And so, how am I ever to know? You always tell me. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. Let's talk about blank, blank as in Rock Hudson, who you knew, um, and you put it in your memoir, and you knew intimately from, from time to time. Um, 
That was quite interesting because you didn't mention his name, but the lack of it made so much more of an impact. Well, those blanks were sort of the Victorian tradition of uh, leaving out the name of a famous person that's, uh, uh, that's done something. Um, and I had to do it. What a marvelous looking man. I wonder if he's single. I don't know how long I can get away with this act. Uh, later on, when we had the miniseries, I called him Fleet Parker. Um, because you can't have, have a character named Blank Blank. <laughs> but in the paper, it just pointed out that you... It made the point that people in Hollywood, some very famous people in Hollywood, are living in the closet. And all of us foot soldiers out there, the openly gay people that were suffering the reality of AIDS... Um, we we were different from those people that were hiding, who were using the privilege of their power or their money or their fame mm. to stay hidden. Just what is wrong with Rock Hudson? Tonight, the 59-year-old actor remains in a Paris hospital undergoing tests, but the nature of his illness has become clouded in mystery and confusion. Yesterday, it was reported that Hudson had liver cancer and possibly AIDS, but today, the hospital denied the cancer story and said nothing about the AIDS rumor. A spokesman just said Hudson was tired. Do you at all regret outing Rock Hudson towards the end of his life? I know a, a, a newspaper guy came to you and asked, um, simply based on the fact that he hadn't gone out of his way to hurt anybody in the LGBTQ community, and being an actor was very difficult to be to be an actor and to, to be out and gay. I'm, I'm only asking because I read online that sooner or later you would have had a moral obligation to tell the truth because of the standards you had publicly set for yourself. Well, my question is, would it be possibly better to have tried to persuade the man himself that he would feel so much better by coming out rather than making that decision for him? Uh, I did try to persuade him, okay. and he wasn't sick early on when I first met him. Okay, fair enough. And uh, we talked about it, and his husband, his partner at the time, mm. said, not until my mother's dead, <laughs> which I thought was such an odd thing to say because if I was fucking Rock Hudson... I'd want my mother to know. In fact, I did tell my mother at one point. Did you? What'd she say? Was she impressed? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very impressed. But, I, but the serious part of that question is whether I had destroyed this man's life at the end of his life. But in fact, he got 30,000 letters of support when the stories, when People Magazine, I think, was the first one that ran it. Journalism, you see, they, it was a given that to say somebody was gay was libelous, and so nobody did it. And that, I realized, was one of the reasons we were having such a hard time being ourselves. And if you couldn't discuss it, then um, we were going to stay that way. The closet would be a permanent institution that was being honored. And so um, I knew that uh, at this point in history, if a heart, Hollywood heartthrob was known to be gay and going through this terrible experience that would make life easier for everybody else mm -hmm. who was going through it. There were people with AIDS who were saying, oh, you've got that thing that Rock Hudson had. Did you have any feedback either directly from Rock Hudson or via his people or friends after you did that? 
Um, I heard from his biographer, the person he has, who he assigned to write his biography, and she came to me and she said, Rock said, you're the first person I should talk to. So I knew that he got it. I knew that he got it. It was a hard time for me, as, as it must have been for him. Uh, but, it, it, you know, most people don't even know that I was the person who broke that dam. Mm. Because it, as soon as they had one person to pin it on, mm. they could talk to everybody else in Hollywood that was saying, oh, I didn't say it, so I can say this about him. Mm. We were basically all just saying uh, he was loved. He was a great guy. And it breaks her heart that he's going through this. That's what I said. And I have to say, as a gay man, one of the hottest um, screen legends, whatever, ever. Intimidatingly so for yeah. me, you know, if you've read the memoir. I have. <laughs> I failed that scene in many ways. You had another scene later. A few. Well, yeah. <laughs> you did read the memoir. <laughs> All I do is dream of you. The whole night through With the dawn I still go on And dream of you You're listening to SNS Online with today's special guest, Armistead Morpin. And if you want to comment on this or any other show, then please contact our brand new website, snsonlineshow.com. Now, how will Master Morpin reveal himself via his very own music choice? Time to find out. SNS Online presents the soundtrack of your life. I really like Wicked Little Town from Hedvig and the Angry Inch. I don't know why, but it makes me feel great. And it, uh, I, I can't exactly, anybody who's heard it, knows what I'm talking about, but it's, uh, it's speaking about transformation and um, it just, it touches me. This, the music moves me. Um, it speaks to me.
What would you say to your younger self, say age 15 or so, if you could go back in time and impart some advice from your future self? Don't listen to your parents. Um, kiss a boy as soon as possible. I mean, I might have been arrested if I'd done that, but I don't, you know, that's what I would like to have seen. I admire people that have that suddenly found their sassiness at an early age. I was 25 before I lost my virginity in a very clumsy way. Also available in the memoir, <laughs> that scene. I was similar to the age, actually. Most of the my sex scenes in the memoir are bad sex scenes because <laughs> they're the interesting ones. Yeah. yeah, I've had many comedic ones as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> we should swap those sometime. <laughs> right. I still love you. I still need you Don't hang up and say goodbye Walking on the beach last night Hoping things would be alright But later lying on her bed It's you I saw instead Thinking of the one I love San Francisco day, San Francisco night San Francisco day, San Francisco night Hey, I'm Jude from London. Those Tales of the City books were passed to me by my boss in the early 80s to kind of gay it forward. I was completely immersed and fell in love with San Francisco, moved there in my mind, and I've never really moved away. The original series, which was pretty much how I'd imagined it, knocked my socks off, and the newer books and series were perfection, too. To be honest, I'm still under the spell. Hi, I'm Ricky from Beckenham. Armistead Morpin's Tales of the City was the first book that had showed me that a family of choice was just as valid as a family of blood. It also taught me that there should be no LGB without adding a T. Hi, I'm Amber from London. I haven't read the books, but binge-watched the new series in one day and really enjoyed it. My favourite was Mrs Madrigal's backstory, which I found really moving. I hadn't even realised there were books, but I'm glad that I discovered tales. Hi, this is Ricky from Cairns, Queensland, Australia. In late 1989, I got a new job. And it soon became obvious that there was a group of people who'd all read this um, series of books uh, called The Tales of the City. Never heard of it before. Do you know, my life would have been missing a certain richness without Armistead's writing, which I'm still reading to this day. Hi, this is Peter Tatchell. Armistead Morpin's Tales of the City is a snapshot of the LGBT plus community decades ago, but its characters and stories still have a resonance and relevance today. It is still a really great read. This is Brad Wolf from Australia. I first discovered Tales of the City about a year after I'd left small town New Zealand after high school and moved to the big smoke of Wellington, which is one of those cities that has a bouquet similar to Melbourne or London or indeed San Francisco, even if not the size, but still the earthquake risk. 
I was a little bit mouse, a little bit Marianne myself, and funnily enough, I soon made the acquaintance of an elderly lady who used to deliver pot to your door. She was no Mrs. Madrigal, of course, who could be, but the spirit threaded through from that freewheeling 70s vibe of Tales of the City to my own self-exploration, and I've always carried a bit of Barbary Lane in my heart. This is the body of Supervisor Harvey Milk as it was taken from City Hall. Witnesses say after killing the mayor, White ran down the hall and fired three shots at Melk, killing him. Melk had opposed the reappointment of White. In the total confusion after the shooting, the president of the Board of Supervisors, Diane Feinstein, spoke. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. On November the 27th, 1978, the first openly elected official in the history of California, Harvey Bernard Milk, was murdered. Alongside Mayor George Moscone by a disgruntled and openly homophobic ex-employee, Dan White. Although Armstead didn't know Milk well, they were, as he described, brothers in the same revolution. And in the years ahead, proved to be both a shoulder to cry on and ultimately a lifelong friend of Milk's devastated boyfriend, Steve Beery. In his memoir, Logical Family, Armstead talks about events a few hours after the murder, when up to 40,000 people formed a spontaneous candlelight march from Castro Street to City Hall. The crowd that gathered at Castro and Market had grown too large for that space and began heading down Market Street, with hundreds of people joining it at every intersection. They were carrying candles and paper cups, a surging sea of candlelight, almost phosphorescent in its beauty, like plankton on a night tide. And I'd never heard such silence. This was not a march or even a protest. It was a conscious act of love in response to a conscious act of barbarism. It was the very best of us, made visible. My friends and I merged with that tide and, and let us carry it into the Civic Center, where City Hall, the scene of the crime just eight hours earlier, now became the temple of our grief. As the plaza began to fill with mourners, the silence somehow remained intact until a slender, stately woman walked across the stage, stood at a microphone, and began to sing Amazing Grace. She had not been announced, but the crowd recognized her voice with a single sigh. She had lulled me to sleep sometimes during that bittersweet summer before college when Clark and I were living at the beach and he was extolling the virtues of pussy and I longed all too fearfully for a beautiful navy diver in faded red shorts. I once was lost but now am found Was blind but now I see when I began crying, it was for everything at once. For Harvey and George. For my mother. 
from my father's inexpressible pain, from my own awkward journey of self-discovery, for the comfort of friends and lovers in the darkest of hours. I know I can't tell you what it is to be gay, but I can tell you what it's not. It's not hiding behind words, Mama, like family and decency and Christianity. It's not fearing your body or the pleasures that God made for it. It's not judging your neighbor except when he's crass or unkind. Being gay has taught me tolerance, compassion, and humility. It has shown me the limitless possibilities of living. It has given me people whose passion and kindness and sensitivity have provided a constant source of strength. It has brought me into the family of man, Mama, and I like it here. I like it. There's not much else I can say except I'm the same Michael you've always known. You just know me better now. I have never consciously done anything to hurt you. I never will. Please don't feel you have to answer this right away. It's enough for me to know that I no longer have to lie to the people who taught me to value the truth. Your loving son, Michael. I took my love, I took it down. I climbed a mountain and it turned around. And I saw my reflection in snow-covered hills till the landslide brought me down. What is love? Can a child within my heart rise above? Can I sail through the changing ocean tides? Can I handle the seasons of my Maybe The Moon and The Night Listener have been the only novels to date to move away from Tales, both wonderful pieces of works in themselves. Now that Tales is over, what can we expect next? Presumably the unexpected, but perhaps a novel set in London. Um, Yes, you can expect that. Um, I'm not continuing Tales, but it's going to be a Tales novel. I'm going to do a deep dive back into the middle of the story to tell people what happened to Mona Ramsey after she inherited the big house in the Cotswolds. Oh, my God, that's fantastic. It's called... Uh, thank you for your enthusiasm. No, I'm, this is amazing. Uh, it's called Mona of the Manor. I love it. And uh, I've sold it to both my British and American publishers, and the contracts just came through today. Oh, congratulations. So can I shake... Oh, no, my, I, my hand's a bit wet, <laughs> but... <I'll, laughs> congratulations, that's amazing. I'm very happy about it. I think it's going to be fun because I get to... It's... Uh, the, uh, It'll be set in the late 80s when Maggie Thatcher was doing Clause 28. And, and we love her. And condemning, <laughs> condemning uh, you know, pretended family relationships, as she called them. And I think Mona would be very upset with that phrase. That's brilliant. And, of course, she's, she's got this manor house that she's having to support and, and run. And so she's going to take people in. Mm-hmm. 
much in the way that her father, Anna Madrigal, uh, did back in San Francisco. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes Watching the ships roll in And then I'll watch them roll away again Yeah, I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away you're listening to SNS Online with today's special guest, Armstead Morpin. And just before we rejoin our favourite author, let's take a listen to our top 10 assembled sundry fact spot. Today, about tales and Armstead Morpin. Armstead has received a number of awards over the years, including the Bill Whitehead Award for Lifetime Achievement, the Best Gay Book Read, and the Lightsquake Literary Festival Barbary Coast Award. Goodbye to Berlin's Christopher Isherwood was a mentor, friend, and influencer of Armstead's. The Tales of the City books have been translated into 10 languages, and there are more than 6 million copies in print. In May 2011, a musical version of Tales premiered at the American Conservatory Theatre in San Francisco with a school by the Scissor Sisters. Because Tales installments were published so soon after Armstead wrote them, he was able to incorporate many current events into the plot of his series, as well as gauging readers' response and modifying the story accordingly. There have been four miniseries adapted from the books. The first, broadcast on Channel 4 in the UK in 1993, did not get an American airing until the following year via PBS. Reaction to the American screening was mixed, despite giving PBS its highest ratings ever for a television drama. Controversy arose around the show's homosexual themes, nudity and illegal drug use, which effectively put funding on the show's next instalment on hold. Consequently, more Tales of a City was not made until 1998, five years after the original. All the books have been adapted and broadcast on BBC Radio 4. There are also audiobooks of the series read by Francis McDormand, Cynthia Nixon, Alan Cumming, Kate Mulgrew and Armistead himself. Maybe the Moon, one of Armistead's two non-tales novels, was described by the author as partly autobiographical, despite the main character being a female heterosexual Jewish dwarf. The character was also based on Morpin's friend, Tamara Detro, who played the part of E.T. in the iconic sci-fi movie of the same name. According to Morpin's website, Maybe the Moon may have been the last book Jackie Onassis ever read. Daryl Hannah, who at the time was dating Jackie's son John Kennedy Jr., had optioned the book to produce a film version and had asked Jackie to read the book and give her an opinion. And finally, Armstead's other separate novel, The Night's Listener, was adapted into a film starring Robin Williams, who consequently became a friend of Morpin. And that's your Armstead Morpin Top 10. I want to know about your life, Ren said flatly. How you made it the way it was supposed to be. My reassignment, you mean? In part, yeah. You must have been one of the first? Oh, no. There were people in the 30s. Dr. Hirschfeld in Berlin had several patients, one of whom died after surgery. The one I knew about, of course, was Christine Jorgensen in the early 50s. Everybody knows about her. 
Anna was clearly waiting for an acknowledgement that Ren was unable to provide. Sorry, that was... before your time, of course. She'd been George Jorgensen of the Bronx, in the army like me. And she went to Denmark for the hormones and surgery. That's how I got the idea. Although that was a tricky business a decade later. The Danish hated the publicity around Christine, so they banned the procedure. I had to find a doctor on the sly in Copenhagen. Anna rearranged her hands in her lap with imperial dignity. Christine was very brave. Heroic, really. Having the surgery, you mean? No, well, yes. It was still risky. But I meant back home. The whole slideshow, the cheap jokes, all that GI becomes glamour girl nonsense. She took it with remarkable grace and candor. There were reporters waiting for her at the airport, so she wore sunglasses and a mink and stepped off the plane like a movie star. She owned her truth. It was how she kept the world from hurting her. This following program is dedicated to the city and people of San Francisco, who may not know it, but they are beautiful, and so is their city. This is a very personal song. I appreciate Tales was the first, but how do you think they compare, if they, indeed you can compare them, to Queer as Folk, Queer as Folk, USA, Looking, etc.? You know, you obviously started a... Well, I'm very proud of that legacy, that people that have... Uh, Russell Davies is a brilliant writer, and that, that uh, time and again, what's he called? Time after time, I always forget the name of the recent miniseries. Time and... Years and years. Years and years. <laughs> Sorry, what are you talking about? I don't know. It's great. Uh-huh. It's just great. And I've watched and the first episode like about five times. <laughs> it's amazing, and I love Russell Tovey. Who doesn't? But um, get in line, sweetie. Yeah, really. <laughs> Do you know Russell T. Davis? I've, you know, I, he came to a book signing of mine years ago, mm. and didn't introduce himself. And uh, the person behind him said, do you know who that was? And I said, no. He said, Russell T. Davies. And I said, go quick, go get him. But he's gone by then, and I didn't get a chance to... He seems the nicest man. I'm sure you two would get get it going well. He must be. Mm. uh, You can feel his heart in what he's doing. Are you guys a couple? Asked the kid. You bet, said Michael. Husbands. Ben looked over at the man he'd been with for eight years. The man he'd married twice just to make it stick. Michael's generation, its history of fighting disease and bigotry, sometimes made him grumpier than Ben would like him to be. But he knew what he'd found in Michael. A gift for intimacy like none Ben had ever known. Michael, for all his messiness, knew how to connect with him completely. Don't you ever get jealous? Asked the kid. Oh yeah, said Michael. Truly, madly, deeply jealous. So let's talk about the book tour you're currently on. It's, it's a public appearance tour in that it's not attached to any particular book. Because you have done that before. I saw you in Brighton a few yes, years ago. Yes, I have traveled around England with, with promoting books. This is uh, its own creature, if you will. Um, 
So I've, I've got the lateral list here. You've got, you're going to various places, the Grand Opera House in York and yeah, yeah. Norwich Theatre Royal, Birmingham, London, the Bridge Theatre. I'm going to be there that night. And then Laura Linney's going to be there for that one. Uh, she's just said she can do it. So uh, I'm so excited, excited about that. I'll be in the front waving at you. You think, <laughs> who, who the hell is that? I well, always get more excited when Laura's in the room. <laughs> You've also got Neil Gaiman. Um, yeah. So you're having somebody interviewing you each time? Well, it's a conversation if we know each other. And sometimes it's a conversation if we don't know each other. Mm-hmm. It, it's uh, a chance to bring things out that might not otherwise come yeah. out. Because Peter Tatchell was one of our guests. He's going to be right. interviewing in Brighton, isn't he? Yeah, yeah I'm yeah. really excited about meeting Peter. I've, I've never met him, and I've, he's been a hero of mine for a long time. I said to him years ago that there should be a statue erected of him, just of all the work he's done. There should be one of you, too. <laughs> well... <laughs> I don't know about me, but uh, he certainly deserves a blue plaque at best, you know. He does actually have a blue plaque already. He's one of a few who has one and is still alive. You have to uh, ask him about that. Several years later, I returned to WRAL-TV on a book tour. The female half of the nightly news team was one of those lazy... Tell us all about your book, Spokesmodels, the touring writers come to know all too well. In those days, I never got the male anchors. They weren't comfortable being seen with men who loved men. So when my chirpy interviewer slipped into cookie-cutter mode about my novel, I decided to use the airtime for my own amusement and volunteered some useful information. You know, I used to work here. Really? In Raleigh, you mean? No, at this very station. I was a reporter. Well, isn't that a hoot? I worked here when Jesse Helms was here. Now he's in Washington ranting about militant homosexuals, and I'm out running around being one. No response. Life is interesting, isn't it? Somehow the poor thing got into the commercial without losing it completely. I was supposed to be given a full six minutes, but but they showed me the door as soon as the camera was off and brought on an adoptable puppy from the Wake County SPCA the very organization that my late mother had founded. My mother and Mrs. Jessie Helms. San Francisco, open your golden gate. You'll let no stranger wait outside your door. San Francisco, here is your wandering one, saying I'll wander no more. Other places only make me love you best. Tell me you're the heart of all the golden west San Francisco, welcome me home again I'm coming home to go roaming no more Armstead Mopin, thank you so much uh, for this interview I really appreciate it It just remains for me to give you your celebrity goodie bag Which all the um, guests get uh, And including... There is a book by another guest of ours, Diane Atkinson, who wrote a wonderful book about the suffragettes, which I thought oh, you might that's be interested great. in. I'd love to have that. Yeah, and um, the only other thing I've got uh, down here, excuse me, doggy, is a, a cactus, which is not an fu cactus; it's a thank you cactus. Because I know you. you were a big fan of cactuses uh, when you were young, and oh. they featured in Tales of a City. They—that's quite true. Both things. You read well and listened well, and this is adorable. It can join your it's logical. Not doing fa- anything lewd, is it? Unless it's. <laughs> It's a man with one testicle. And <laughs> it can join your logical family. So Yes, it, it will. It'll go right on the shelf here. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you so much. I left my love in San Francisco.
Once again, go to the wonderful Armstead Morpin. His UK tour continues until early December, so for information and for all things Morpin in general, please check out armstedmorpin.com. Extracts from Logical Family were read by Anthony Townsend, whilst Tales of a City Passages featured Dev Joshi, Mike Brunner, and Armstead Morpin. Thanks also go to fan contributions around the world, including past SNS guests Rick Philbin, Brad Wolf, and Peter Tatchell. Our next show in this loosely linked two-parter features the young pretender to Armstead's crown, author, interviewer, and LGBTQ activist Paul Burston. But until then, from me, Nick Randall, goodbye. snsonlineshow.com your brand new one-stop shop for all things SNS take a tour through our wide and diverse collection of shows and listen in to our exclusive range of in-depth interviews spanning the popular arts featuring actors, writers, journalists stand-up comedians, musicians and more you can also enjoy our shorter bite-sized series covering vibrant new theatre, television and book releases and with our Arts Lifestyle Remit, you get to explore issue-based topics including health, mental health, women's rights around the world and LGBTQ. Contact us with both your comments and suggestions for future guests. And don't forget to read up on our blog, regularly updated with articles and photographs. A forum where everyone is welcome to contribute. SNSonlineshow.com, your one-stop shop for all things SNS. SNS.